Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 8. Give your attention to the reading of the Word of God. I'll read the entire chapter. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Behold, what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. And then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations in that the house of Israel are committing here? to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will, you, will still, you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. And so I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all round was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel. And Jaaz, Aniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each had a censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, you will, still, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. And then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will still see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? 
Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Heavenly Father, bless to our understanding, the reading, and our hearing of it read, your infallible word, as well as its exposition. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> the book of Ezekiel is filled with difficult things as those who've been here. <laughs> and, and I'm blessed to hear that some of you are reading ahead and paying attention and wondering, several have expressed, I wonder what you're going to say about this today and, or that, and that is especially gratifying. Uh, Captain House, I know, is not in the congregation. I hope he's listening on the live stream. He asked me to do, he's been asking me to do Ezekiel for at least four years, maybe longer, and I've been resisting him, but um, I think um, I, now I understand why wanted me to preach through this book because it is timely but it does speak to the issues of the day as it does every day as the word of God is always relevant in application to what is happening in the world but in, in the book of Ezekiel among many messages is this message God tells us exactly what he thinks of the idols of his people and he tells us precisely what they amount to. And uh, I resisted giving the um, definition of the detestable thing, but it's, it's a, a rolling ball of sheep dung. That's what he thinks about it. That's the loose translation of a detestable thing that people worship. In comparison to the glory of God, Anything that anyone worships is as dumb. The time of this passage is 14 months from the beginning of Ezekiel. From the time of his initial uh, vision. And by this time, the exiles had uh, come from, from Jerusalem, had been settled in Babylon... And they had developed a habit of daily life. In the midst of this, Ezekiel, you recall, has been lying on one, one side for um, was it 390 days. And then he, uh, some speculate this passage is, because of the 14-month time frame, this is the interlude between when he turns over and lays on the other side for 40 days. possible. This was his break. We don't think we don't think that he laid continually for for over a year on one side. We think that was his daily sermon that God ordained for his people in the Babylonian exile. And the message was this is what God happens to God's people when they turn their back upon 
God's word. And then he turns over, and that was to the ten northern tribes, and then he turns over and speaks to the two remnant tribes, of which now are being deported to Babylon. And while he's there, and during this time, he has obviously developed the habit of family worship. We're having a wonderful Sunday school class continuing. We've changed years from the covenants to family worship. And as wonderful as our, our covenant class was, I, I, I heard the first class on family worship. It promises uh, to be uh, uh, wonderful as well. Uh, such a great encouragement from Matt Lee and uh, talking about how the and the 1640s in England uh, the reformed churches came together and gave us these three wonderful uh, expositions of the scripture called the confession of faith and the larger and the westminster larger catechism the westminster shorter catechism and my mind couldn't help but think of of all the reasons behind it and the, the gathering of that time. If you remember, if you know your history and should be a student of history, that was the time of the interregnum in England when they didn't have a period of, I think, 14 years where they didn't have a king of England. The reformers had risen up and uh, politically, you can, you can question whether they were right or wrong, but uh, they, they did not want to have a Catholic king, Charles I. And they rebelled against him, and, uh, and uh, they established uh, the parliamentarian system of government in England that still, still remains, uh, although they reinstituted the, king, the kings afterwards. But the period before the interregnum and the period after the interregnum was a time of great persecution of the Reformed uh, faith. And one of the reasons it just struck me as I thought about my sermon this morning is it struck me that one of the, the primary emphasis on family worship, and as I, I looked at this text, Ezekiel in, in captivity is when, you're, when you've been reduced down to nothing, where do you worship? You gather in your home. It's great to have this wonderful public facility, this comfortable place where we can gather and worship and have fellowship dinners and all kinds of uh, activities, uh, what a wonderful shower yesterday, and things like that, this multi-purpose building, which is indeed used for that purpose. But our, the text reminds me that our main purpose as the people of God is to gather and worship. And it's obvious that Ezekiel had the habit of gathering in exile the elders of Israel, for the purpose of worshiping him. And in the midst of that worship, what do they see? What does Ezekiel see? As the hand of the Lord falls upon him, he has a, another vision of the glory of God. The glory of the Lord is revealed as he's sitting in gathered worship in his home, he sees the vision of the pre-incarnate Son of God again. Just as he had in the beginning in chapter 1 of Ezekiel. 
catechism, our confessions, our, they, they are so spot on in defining the purpose of life. What is, what is the chief end of man? If you don't know anything else about the Presbyterian Church, you probably have heard of the first question of the catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are created beings of God, created to worship. And we're either worshiping the creation or the creator. And the only way the creator has revealed to worship him correctly is through the inscripturated word of God. We live in a world that is worshiping all the time, right? They're worshiping different things. At the heart of worship and the heart of idolatry, as we've brought up several times, is this worship of self. An idol is convenient. It is uh, something you can use uh, uh, at your will. You can put it where you want it. You can put it in a place and you can take it out when you want it and you can put it away when you don't want it. It's convenient. One of the attributes, whereas there is no such thing in the true kingdom of God, as Ezekiel and the fellow elders behold, and as Ezekiel in particular sees in this instance. God takes him by, it says by a lock of his hair, in the form of a hand, it doesn't say a hand, it says in the form of a hand, takes him by a lock of his hair. And if you're like me, you're thinking he grabbed him up by the hair and ripped him up. <laughs> I, I don't think that, there's a, there's a sense in that one, but I don't think that's the right, right kind of picture here. It's more he, I, it shows the power of God how easy it is for him to take Ezekiel and lift him up just by a lock of his hair. Because it's truly, and, and it's, a, it's a picture of God's mercy and his kindness. It's not a, I don't, I think it's wrong to see any violence at this at all. It, it's simply God showing his power by taking him and lifting him up to this place between earth and heaven to see back in Jerusalem hundreds of miles away from the perspective of Babylon back to Jerusalem to see what has caused this destruction and it is a vision of the glory of God of the God of Israel as he looks back at the temple and he sees what has caused this destruction. And what is it? It's the seed. It is the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, which is God's assessment of all the false idols of Israel and all the false idols of his people for all times. This is the message of, of the Bible, in the, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. 
were taught again and again in the New Testament. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. See, the foolishness of idolatry is what brought judgment upon Israel and caused them to be deported to Babylon. God is going to show. He's going to lift Ezekiel up and he's going to see God's glory and as a result he's also going to see the sheer arrogance and folly of idolatry and what idolatry causes. What is this? What is this image of jealousy? What is this? What is what are these terrible things? Most Bible scholars think it's the, the image of Baal that, Joseph, uh, that Manasseh set up at the north entrance of the temple. And you can read about that over in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 7 in, in particular, but really that whole instance in chapter 2 Kings 21 and 22 is the background of, of this vision that Ezekiel sees. What, whatever image it is, it is, um, is, is probably not the main focus. It is not the main focus. What it brings about in God, in the attributes of God toward his people, is the main thing to consider. Our God has righteous jealousy. Most of our jealousy is unrighteous. You know, there's only one appropriate place for jealousy in our life. In my, well, there, there are probably a few, but one, the one that comes most easily to my mind is the jealousy, the rightful, just jealousy that exists between a husband and a wife. We, we, we are to jealousy to, to guard that relationship. And God likens his relationship to us to that, that kind of jealousy. God has paid the ultimate price for his people. By his predetermined plan and foreknowledge and executing that plan, he has sent his son into the world to lay down his life for his people. Ephesians 5 makes it clear that analogy of a marriage is a picture of the gospel, of what God has done. It's a picture to husbands of how we're called to love our wives sacrificially, and wives how we are to sacrificially honor and respect our husbands. And anything that competes with that relationship of God with his people, he is provoked. And he doesn't even bother to give this idol its proper name. He just calls it the image of jealousy. In the book of Nahum, we see this attribute of God in the very first, second verse of the first chapter of Nahum. It says, the Lord is a jealous and angry God. The Lord is angry, uh, is an avenging and and wrathful. The 
The Lord is avenging and wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he keeps his wrath on his enemies. Well, I'm so glad that we don't worship stars. We don't worship the sun. That's what these gods were set up for. We don't worship the seasons. Or do we? In different ways. Idolatry is anything that we put in the place of God. Someone has well said, how do you know something's an idol in your life? Well, how do you act when it's taken away from you? If your whole life falls apart, then you know you've probably made something an idol. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of, of a, a woman in his congregation. Or no, actually, tell stories of a Quaker meeting. It's, I don't know if anybody has a Quaker background. But if you're if you're familiar with Quaker meetings, you you simply sit there until the Spirit moves someone, and then they stand up and prophesy. <clears throat> And then this one Quaker meeting, there was this lady who came in. Charles Spurgeon tells this story, so it's got to be okay. She would come in week by week with inconsolable grief, having lost a child. And there's, there's no greater loss than losing a child. But for months and months and even into years, she would come in and grieve. And was inconsolable. And he tells the story of in this Quaker meeting, someone finally stood up and said, and prophesied as they occasionally do, I perceive that children are idols. It could be anything. It could be the, the, the pursuit of wealth and prosperity. It could be... The, the, some political savior that we hope to have. Could be anything that we put in the place of God. The image, note where the image is. It is at the entrance of the temple. You would do homage to the idol on your way into to the, the true worship of God and you would, have, would think about doing the same there's, there's some kind of connection between the two. If you learn anything else from the book of Ezekiel, is that God's worship is to be exclusive. He alone is to be worshipped as he calls us to worship him. Through his instructions in his word. The temptation to be like the world and to substitute what the world worships or to add it on in our worship is always there. It's always a temptation. But the Word of God tells us in the Old Testament and the New that friendship with this world is hostility. To God. 
It's in James 4, verse 4, if you want to look it up. And James goes further. He, he, calls, he calls those who do that adulteresses. But then it gets worse. I'm going to show you what God says. It's, that's bad. That, that idol standing at the north entrance of the temple of God is terrible, Ezekiel. But I'm going to show you some things that are worse. <laughs> the real problem, the problem is deeper than just giving homage to the world. It's much deeper than that even. Again, such a wonderful Sunday school class. We're reminded of so many things relevant to the sermon. One of them is uh, the reaction uh, to the Roman Catholic way of uh, catechizing. Before the Reformation, the Roman Catholic way of catechism was to build a statue or, or, or paint a picture in order to explain the gospel. And it was a short, uh, short trip from, from uh, instructing people with art to worshiping the art, and it remains. Let's be honest. I, uh, one of the many adventures I've had with Dow personally, we got, we got to go to the main street of Istanbul, Turkey, on, on, our, on the trip I've mentioned several times. And I was excited to go to the main street because I heard there was a church there on the main street, and we saw this endless, throng of humanity going down that main boulevard in, in Istanbul. And I'm still struck with a picture in my mind of, of, of everyone, almost everyone's dressed in black and how dark that whole, whole place was. And finally, there's this beautiful cathedral in, in the middle of that boulevard. And I'm excited because there are people, it's like on the tourist list and it's a beautiful place and I'm excited to go in there and to see this one place where the Christian faith is venerated, and as I go in, what are, and there are people gathered all around the center of this uh, this beautiful building on the inside, and what are they looking at? This incredible statue of Mary. This luminous statue. This luminous gilded statue. And I think, how sad. But this is the witness of Christianity in this Muslim country that abhors any kind of images at all, if you know anything about Islam. This is the picture of Christianity in the midst of that lost nation. Whether it's you brought this into the sanctuary. Look at what they're doing. Look at the vile abominations they are committing there. And look and, and I'm gonna dig a hole in the wall. Now I don't if 
this time the walls are probably breached and they're probably down and they could probably go in and see what's on the walls. And what is there? The pictures of the false gods of the surrounding nations. And the fact that they're in the quarters of the priests. They're looking at these images like all the other people. And then further, the women are weeping for Tammuz. They're spending their emotions on this false Babylonian god that, that uh, indicated the, the end of the summer season and the harvest to come and the winter which would follow. And, and the practice was women would weep and spend their emotions on idols. Of course, that would never happen today, right? <laughs> We, don't, we won't spend our, our, our money and our fortune and our emotions on idols. Unless they're in nature or on our favorite sports team. I, I so appreciated Jeff Tuning talking about his uh, obsession with the local team and how it controlled his life and he realized he had a problem. I think most believers, if we're honest, we're gonna confess the same problem. Whether it's the Razorbacks or the Rebels or the Sooners or the Aggies, let me see who else I can offend. If I missed you, the Bears, we'll just, we'll just uh, fill it in. Don't let your life and your emotions depend on what a bunch of uh, adolescents do on, on the ball court or <laughs> football field. We see our, our Hollywood idols. We call them that, don't we? We even call them that. We call them that. We call them, our programs dedicated to them idol, idols, sports idols, Hollywood idols, actors. And then you peel back their life and you see how absolutely miserable they are. That's the message of Ezekiel. I'm not saying you can't enjoy those things. Those things are, 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 are fun and a blessing when you have them in their proper place. But when they take over and they dominate your life to the point where you worship them, then God is not pleased. I'll show you something worse than this. They go to the eastern gate, in front of the eastern gate, they, the, they turn their back on the temple and they worship the sun when it comes up. some mainline churches that is exactly what's happened they've dropped all pretense and their gatherings their their national gatherings their national assemblies they just they go out pull out bail <laughs> and pagan worship if you don't believe me just look it up when you abandon 
God's word, when you set aside his, his righteousness and his holiness revealed in the person of Jesus, this is what, what happens. It is a really important point for us to make that our posture in the church needs to be like Ezekiel. Ezekiel is preaching to the Jewish people. I am preaching to the, the, for the most part, the people of God. If you're here and you don't know the Lord, then I hope you hear me clearly. This is about what God expects of us as Christians. We are to worship Him. But I, we see daily blared in the headlines of the famous failures of God's servants. And we shouldn't be surprised because God promises that he will judge fornicators and idolaters. In, in the book of Hebrews that we went through, he makes it really clear that those who, who profess faith, who engage in these things, they're going to be judged and publicly humiliated. As it should be. Because that's what God is saying to his people. Israel has already been judged. Israel has already been, uh, the, the ten northern tribes of Israel at this point in Ezekiel's ministry, uh, as he demonstrated by laying on his side for 390 days, which is uh, the equivalent of the whole time of, of their uh, 309 years of judgment that they've been scattered, the so-called ten lost tribes. And he's about to turn over on his other side and say, for 40 years you're going to be in exile in Babylon and you're going to be judged. That message is for God's people, the Jewish people. And what was their response? They they put the branch to their nose. Now, there's been all kinds of speculation. What does that mean? They put a branch to their nose. Well, if you look at the, the pictures of the ancient uh, pagan gods of this time, it was a common act of worship to put a flower or a branch to the nose. That's how they worshiped their false gods. So God, their response to God's judgment was to worship more false gods. First Corinthians six, verse nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a warning to the church. That's not a warning to those outside the church. We must be loving and kind in our testimony to those who are outside the church who were involved in all of these sins. We must be ruthless with ourselves with these same sins. Because it says, in such were some of you, verse 11, that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ. 
you were washed, if you were cleansed, if you are sanctified in the name of Jesus Christ, he calls you to a life of repentance and faith. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these hard words from Ezekiel. We pray that the Holy Spirit would apply them to our, our lives rigorously today, and you would transform us to make us light in this dark world. As, as was well said in Sunday school this morning, we are in Babylon. We are to be witnesses to a, a, a very pagan and dark world. And, and the only way that we can do that is not by worshiping their same idols, but from, by turning away from them to worship you, the living God. Enable us through the Lord to do this, we pray in Jesus' name.